Welcome to the Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's your host, Matt Browning. So stoked for the interview I have coming up for you today. Hope you're having a good day wherever you are listening to this at home, in the gym, uh, in the shower, lying in bed. I don't know what you do with your podcast time, but I'm glad that we're a part of it. So this interview is uh, something I've been looking forward to and we have, we've missed and rescheduled. And I tell you, like it's almost like uh, nature's against us, but we have made it happen. I'm super stoked to have my guest today, Jill Raff. Now, with 25 years of customer experience, Jill grew up helping her parents run McDonald's number 150 in Florida, the 150th McDonald's ever. She truly learned how to apply Ray Kroc's customer service philosophy that permeates now their over 36,000 stores. And they were, she was part of one of the originals. She's also followed her dream to be a fashion designer, taking her to work in New York City, in Italy, Hong Kong. She's fluent in five languages, trained as a chef at Le Corat Bleu in Paris, France. I'm going to butcher that because I don't speak French. Uh, she became, after that, became a top food stylist. And within the food industry, she's worked with brands like Harrods in London, Godiva Chocolate, Food & Wine Magazine, The Oprah Magazine, and even The Today Show. She uses her entire background now as a high-level consultant for companies who want to create a five-star customer experience with that amazing background. So without any further ado, I want to welcome her to the show. Jill, how are you? <laughs> well, after that, <laughs> You feel great. pretty good, right? You're, you're yeah. a pretty big deal. Well, I'm like, who is that? Who is that? Is that me? Thank you, Matt. It's no, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. So can I start just by, you know, as, as I'm looking at some of like some of your bio and doing some research uh, to have you on the show, I just think, you know, I don't run into people that often that, I mean, you've lived all over the world. You followed your dream multiple different times. You grew up in, in the, in the uh, restaurant world. I want to talk about that. But my first question is what, what switch flipped in you that allowed you to think, you know what, I want to be a fashion designer, so I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to Hong Kong and start working. Like, to get out of the, did you grow up in a home that like you were in the same place forever, or did you move around a lot as a kid? No, I, I completely grew up in Columbus, Georgia. It was a relatively small town, small town environment, and I always loved fashion. It was something that I never really thought that I saw myself doing as a, certainly not as a designer. I, I barely, I never put pencil to paper other than to write with as a kid growing up. And my mom discouraged me from doing that because I was the only entree I knew into the fashion world was through merchandising and marketing. And she said, oh gosh, Jill, it's going to be a terrible life. Everybody's holidays are your busiest days working and you'll never have a good lifestyle. And so one thing led to the next and ultimately I did circle back and decided to follow my dream and become a designer. And when you decided to become that designer, what, and this, this hopefully sounds encouraging, but confrontational, what, what allowed you, like, what was it about you and, and what you believed about yourself that allowed you to think that, you know, someone from Georgia that just grew up in this, you know, town could go live around the world and chase your dream? Like, and, and I mean that because there's so many people that just, 
there's excuse and excuse after excuse or reason after reason why they don't do what they want to do. And I'm just looking at your resume going, you know what? You chased this dream. And then at the end of that, you chased a different dream and you, and you followed it and you just rolled up your sleeves and worked at it. What was it about your perception of yourself, um, your, your self-image or confidence or whatever it was that allowed you to do that? Well, you know, I, I never thought of it in that way. It's just kind of how I live my life. And thanks for asking that. Um, I know. Pretty good question. Yeah. Good question. So, so if, I, if I said life is about what, what comes to your mind? Immediate first thing that came to my mind was adventure. Come on. I mean, that's how obvious is that? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think great back-to-back questions because they really link it together. I think I've always... I know that I've lived my life to live with no regrets. That's really important to me. And I think that I just looked at each step as an adventure. Like it didn't ever dawn on me, oh my gosh, you're moving to a country where you know no one and you don't even speak the language. I studied a little before I went, but I couldn't speak. And so I went and I did a little more studying for a month. And then I just threw myself out there and started knocking on doors for work and you know, things of that nature. And so I think it it really was an adventure. And so it was exciting. I was single and why not? This was my life and go for it. What was the first new country with a new language you landed in? It was my junior year. I did uh, my junior year in university. I went to Hebrew university in Jerusalem. And so Hebrew was my first foreign language. And that, and that's really what I didn't expect that to be one of the five. Yeah. And that, that's what made me realize that to learn, truly learn a language, to understand the culture and the thinking that goes behind a language, you need to learn it and immerse yourself in that country where it's fully spoken. Incredible. And that's such a, such a different culture than, you know, cause and not saying this is easy cause I haven't done it, but you know, I know people that say maybe you spend time in Spain in France and Italy, and there's certainly unique languages, but there's that, that similar thread, right. Between the languages, but yes, for you to, to have, right. For you to have like the English and then I'm assuming French is probably one. Yes. French Italian is Italian. probably one. Yes. Let me guess. Um, let me guess. And then Hebrew. Right. Uh, so let's see, what's the fifth one? Latin. No. <laughs> yes. No. My daughter's studying Latin. Is I she? help her with her Latin homework because of my language background. That's incredible. Spanish so it, is the, the next one. Spanish. Is that, is that your fifth one? That was my fifth, yeah. That's incredible. So that's awesome. So is, is there a term for that? Is it like a... a polyglot, actually. Polyglot. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> so how, how long did you, did you go after fashion design work? How, how long of a chapter in your life was that? It was a pretty big one. I I worked at it full time for about 13 years, but then I went, my dad passed away, unfortunately, um, premature, very early uh, for me, very prematurely. And so I I took a break. I was really burnt out of fashion, literally working 24 seven, traveling a lot. And so I took that year and then kind of, it led me to my second career. And that's what made me think to go follow the footsteps of using my design background, but in my other love, which is food and cooking and baking and presentation was always a big part of the design background. So that's what led me to go to Le Cordon Bleu after that. And and you were saying before we were rolling, you've, you know, you've worked at some, some really beautiful top places. You've done pastry work at, uh, at Harrods in London, which is, if you're not familiar with that, uh, if you're listening, that's 
one of the, the largest you know, department stores and, and there's so much more, right? They have amazing, amazing food area. If you go visit London, you got to see Harrods. Um, mm. So you work in these different places. You're working doing as a chef, but then also you got into, and I'm assuming with, with the French background, getting into like food styling and the appearance, you know, I know like with the French, with Japanese, it's so important, isn't it? It's like, uh, how would you describe the importance of the visual aspect of food uh, in the French culture? Very important. In fact, the French have an expression that says that you eat it first with your eyes. Like it has to taste really amazing, but should be as beautiful as the flavor is delicious. Can you imagine if we treated everything else in our life that way? Mm. Like, like I feel like, like Steve Jobs had that down. You know, just as you're explaining that, I'm thinking about that with Apple, right? Like, and he's talking about, you know, telling the engineers that the circuit board has to be beautiful. It has to be like, you know, minimalist and so forth. And they're like, well, what does it matter? It's going to be shut down. It's like, no, it doesn't matter if it's enclosed. I want the okay. whole thing to be as beautiful and aesthetically pleasing as possible. I want it to be rounded corners. I want, you know, mm. and, and it was this piece of like, it's not just a piece of machinery. Like it's an experience. And, and I, I can see that you bring that. I'm sure you brought that in fashion. You bring that uh, into food and, and, and what you're doing now. We'll get into some of the consulting work uh, that you're doing around customer service. Let me back up just a little bit. Well, first off, anything else on any, any cool stories that came out of uh, spending time with the with the chef work uh, in Paris or at the Mission Star restaurant or anything like that? Anything that's come yeah, to mind? Actually, something you just said um, triggered a, night, a thought that um, in terms of really whether someone sees it or not and, and working hard towards something. So I was very impressed with the onboarding process at Harrods because I was working in the kitchen, so I wasn't directly interfacing with the customers. And yet I went through the same onboarding process as everyone else where they set very clear expectations. They made their core values, their mission statement, very clear. They gave us a little booklet. We had a video. Mr. Al-Fayed came on the screen and told us, you know, about his store and his culture and what his expectations were. It was amazing. I was really touch, especially coming from growing up in McDonald's, it really impressed me and it has stuck with me to today. And it is something actually that I do incorporate into my consulting business, that, that kind of strategy, those kind of ideas. And I, I found out years later, now I've been reaching out to people through Facebook who had worked for my dad. And interestingly, one woman said to me, oh, you know, besides the kind of person he was and very personable, but, oh, your dad used to have training videos and we would have homework and he would test us and we'd have these meetings. And I was blown away by that because I had no, I was too young at the time. I didn't know that, but here was something that I took from what I thought Herod's was a very brilliant way to maintain consistency, consistency with onboarding. And here I find out that my dad was doing the same thing. Incredible. And, and, and to go from, even though obviously McDonald's was a huge, uh, uh, chain of franchise operation. You have, you know, a large company like Harrods to an independent uh, owner operator like your dad's mm -hmm. McDonald's. Tell me, let's pivot back to that actually. So you've been really in customer service since forever. When you were seven years old, you started working in your mom and dad's uh, McDonald's in Florida and they had bought McDonald's number 150. As I said in the intro, McDonald's now, just so everyone knows, um, in all the countries has over 36,000, almost 37,000 stores. So to be part of, I mean, this is the point where this is pretty early on. Do you recall uh, 
and if it's private, it's okay. But what year or time frame did it did uh, your dad get into it, and how much he paid for it? I don't know how much he paid, but I can tell you a interesting, just a small little anecdote. So it was 1959 uh, when they opened their first store in Ocala, Florida, and with my grandparents. And I remember my mom has said that she remembers they had to take a loan. And I can't recall if it's 20,000 or 40,000, but they took a, a loan, which she said, oh my God, what are we doing? We will never be able to pay that back because it wasn't McDonald's like we know of today. It was a risk. They had no idea what it would turn out to be. Whether yeah, it would be successful. It's an opportunity. And, and consider, you know, in 1959, and what was a house? They were probably selling for about 20 something grand, right? So this is yeah, like taking, right. out, taking out a massive mortgage uh, maybe against property or whatever it was like, that's a huge risk. Right. So exactly. they take that out. Uh, I'm sure they got a pretty sweet deal compared to what it, what it is today. Is it, what is it now? It's like a, a million and a half, give or take to, to get in plus a huge. I, I mean, I've read that. I think that is about what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. So a little, little bit less to be store one. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the, you know, you, you talked about, you know, understanding the philosophies of Ray Kroc and, and at in 1959, I, I know you weren't around in 1959, but growing up uh, um, as a kid, as they're running this store and as McDonald's is really gaining traction, becoming what it is, what what were some of the things you began to witness or or started to understand? Because I know one of the things you said I loved was you worked in every single station in the mm-hmm. store. And I didn't realize it, but growing up, I loved doing that. I went in with my dad to uh, where he was refining metal, and I learned everything that I could about that, not knowing I was learning it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just something about that. And when I went into the mortgage business at 18, I, I worked in every single station. And when I didn't realize it, but a few years later, I started my own, and I knew essentially how to train every single position because I had, I had worked them all. Um, you see that as valuable, I'm sure. But why? What? And what were some of the things that happened? Uh, and you noticed about the philosophy and about the customer experience um, with something like one of the first McDonald's. So, um, yeah, going back to when I first started, you know, I answered the phone because I couldn't go up front. The first step after that was the shake machine. And and we used to make milkshakes literally on the multi-mixers that Ray Kroc sold to the McDonald's brothers, how he if you saw the founder. I sure did. Yeah. So we had the multi-mixers. And was that and a, we, fi- a five mixer, five shake mixer? It was five or six. I, I can still visualize it. And it had this um, splash guard that went around the top. And we would measure out the, the ice cream. And we'd first you'd pump in the syrup and you'd measure out the ice cream. And there was a little scale. And then you put it on and you wait for it to get to a certain level. And you pull it off. So my sisters and I used to always compare it to ourselves to each other. And we could tell how much we were growing by where the splash was on our uniform. So it started out on, for me on my face. And then the taller <laughs> I got, we'd see the splash go farther down into our bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, that's awesome. <laughs> so it's like having one of those uh, the, by, by the door, you know, the little markers yeah. in the house, right? You put the pencil line. You're right. Like, for us, it was the shake splash. <laughs> So you've been but, making McDonald's shakes since day one. I love it. Yeah. But I, you know, I wanted, of course, to me, that was like, oh, that was the first step and it was safe. But I always wanted to go. And then we'd start like dressing the buns and he didn't want us on the, the grill or the fries. But when I got older, I couldn't wait to go work the fry station. I don't know why. I just thought that was fun. But my ultimate um, 
the ultimate thing that I loved the most truly was working on the register. I liked greeting people. I liked seeing how quickly I could get people in and out and get them served fast, but really well and know that I was giving them really warm service. And I loved doing the money, working the exchange. I had, I was on a podcast earlier today and we were talking about the fact that today it's so sad that people don't know how to count, do basic change of money and that the computer spits out a digital you know, number of how much change to give back. Right. We and, don't work that muscle of like backwards math. And yeah, I, I see that a lot when uh, someone that's 20 years younger than me. Right. And I give them say, you know, like $20 and like 12 cents. And they're like, Oh, yeah. that's too much. I'm like, I know, just put it in and it'll make sense. And they, oh, I see. It's $1.50 exactly back. I'm like, I know. Exactly. But we used to do that all the time, right? Like everyone understood. In fact, cashiers used to do that. They, hey, do you have an extra quarter? Because then, <laughs> you know, it'll be easier. And That's now, right. You get, now you not so much. Time, small change, you round it up and it's great quick math, but nobody does that anymore. What, what did you, just curious, what did you learn about, um, about bad customer experiences? I'm sure at some point over your years at a McDonald's with that many people in and out every single day, um, you had to have the, the, the quintessential customer who was mad, pissed off about something. What did you see that whether it was what you were able to do, what the McDonald's philosophy was, or maybe what your dad did, what, what were some of the ways that you would handle what seemed to be either angry or poor customer service? Mm, yeah, great question. Well, one of the things that in order to maintain the quality and the control was, you know, if something, they would time everything. And if it went past a certain time, they would bin it. They would throw it out and they'd mark it against inventory so that everything was fresh. But if people complained, maybe the fries, you know, there was a certain amount you had to have the fries standing up, you know, a certain volume of French fries in the bags. People complained maybe they didn't have enough. Their bag was half empty. Something was, order was wrong or cold. We followed the philosophy that was Ray Kroc's philosophy at the time, which is heavily debated today. And that is that the customer is always right. That so that was, was Ray Kroc's philosophy. Yes, absolutely. This, this, this one of the most permeating uh, statements in all of business, the customer is always right. That was Ray's. And yeah, it was, the customer was always right. That's how I grew up with that. And, and if there was something my dad, if he was on the floor or his managers, or even he trained the staff to be able to empower them, which is really important to take action and say, you know, I'm so sorry. Let me change that out for you. Let me make it right. And the, that's the ultimate goal. Let me make it right. So they leave with a great impression and they will come back as a result. I really love that, you know, and so I heard two things from you. Number one is the customer is always right. And, and certainly it is debatable, right? And depending on the industry you're in, you could debate that. Uh, for instance, one of the things we run into like in the coaching space is, you know, sometimes the customer is not always right. When you're dealing with a smaller amount of customers and higher end, um, you might have to say, hang on a second, actually, <laughs> let's talk about this because, you know, you're dealing with less transactions that are worth more. And that's debatable too. You could do that. But when you have like, I saw Starbucks has definitely taken on the same Ray Kroc model. You know, they have a deal where it's like, hey, whatever it is, I don't care if, if I dropped my coffee, my fault. They're like, no problem. That's our fault. We'll make you a new one. Yeah. Um, Hey, you made it exactly as I said, but I said it wrong. No problem. We'll make you a new one. You know, I don't like but the it, way it tastes. No problem. Let, yeah. Let's find you and something. It, you but like. it's like they're able to do that with, with that many people coming through. It's just mm -hmm. that philosophy of let us just put that out there. And the amount of food and inventory we waste 
we far make up for in referral, repeat business, free marketing because people now have a great experience even if something went wrong, right? 100%. Absolutely. In fact, there's interesting Harvard Business School did a, um, a research that showed and when you treat your customers like that, they're going to go on Yelp and give you great reviews. And they found that a one star increase in a restaurant Yelp rating correlated to five to 9% increase in revenue. And that didn't cost them anything. Let's repeat that stat. So a one star rating increase on Yelp Translated to was it five to nine percent revenue increase? increase? In revenue, that's right. And that's that's, and that's no money out. That's just doing your business as should be done. Man, so many gems are coming out right now. So today, um, taking what you did with McDonald's one hundred and fifty, um, your high level work as a as a food stylist and as a French chef, uh, as a fashion designer, and all of that really has come and culminated into what you're doing now. Um, so you've done all, all of this stuff. So, so now you're looking at essentially you're, you've been a high level consultant working for companies. You have a great book out. We'll talk about that right now called transforming transactions into interactions. So getting out of that transactional mindset and into the interaction and, and conversation and relational, I'm assuming, right? Customers Absolutely. aren't, they're not a transaction. They're, they're a, a real live relationship. And that book, Transforming Transactions and Interactions, we'll put a link on that. That's available on Amazon uh, by Jill Raff. Tell me uh, what's, what prompted the idea of, of doing this book and, and what are some, what, maybe what's a takeaway that we could get from some of the work you do with some of these, these high-level companies? Um, sure. Well, the book was inspired because I decided to, it started with start to do some speaking. And then I just started really brain dumping and, and putting down all these ideas for blogs. And then I developed it further. And my local Austin uh, National Speakers Association chapter decided to do a joint book. So that's really how it got started. And, um, and so my chapter is about really what's kind of my motto, transforming transactions into interactions, because I do believe so much in creating that relationship, people connecting one-to-one. And that's the piece of the business that I love the most. And it's great that it helps people, businesses thrive as a result, that you get profit from it. But at the core, people are people first and their customers second. And I think if we remember that, so much of the rest of it will fall in line. People are people first, customers second. Very, very cool. Now, if I, uh, as we're kind of winding down on our time together, um, I'd love to grab just a, a little takeaway from my own customer service. So I'm running a company and certainly I want to I want to get this kind of five-star customer experience into the culture. Where do I start? Uh, is there like either a method or, you know, do I need to make sure I get my value statements out? Um, do I crack the whip and tell all the employees that, you know, they better have these good conversations? What would, how would you start me off? What's a great place to to look at? Well, I would start you off with the first ingredient of my customer experience transformation. I have seven steps in this proprietary process that takes you through kind of the roadmap of that. And the very first step is you can't do anything unless you know who you are. So it's critical to have your core values and your mission statement super clear and well-defined so that not only can you use that going forward to 
assess every decision that you make in your business isn't an alignment. And if it's not, then you need to say no and find something, a solution that will be in alignment with your core values. And how are you going to train your management and your staff to deliver what you want to represent you if you don't know who you are? So the very first step, it always starts with the leadership. It always starts with the owner. And that's getting super clear on your core values and your mission statement and why you're different than anyone else. So you got to know who you are, what your vision is, what your mission is, what your values are. And it's so right. It's like, how, how many times have we seen like a, a manager or owner try to outsource or hire and they, they tell someone, okay, just start doing it kind of this way. And then they do it. And then they start reprimanding the person and it's like, oh, I can't believe you aren't doing this right. And they can't figure it out. But the real reason is always top down, right? It's like, if, if you're not sharing what your culture really is, you don't know what it is. How could you possibly teach it? That's right. Exactly. And, and hold, you can't hold someone accountable for something unless you've done your part for your accountability. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, I, I think that, I think that's their bad for sure. So right now, uh, Jill, you are available for speaking. You're available for hire as a consultant. If you're listening to this and you want to really transform your customer engagement uh, experience into a five-star experience, I can't think of someone better. Honestly, I can't than, uh, than Jill Raff for, for your background, your, your experience. And just your, your, your personality. I mean, you're just a delight to be around and absolutely brilliant. Um, Jill, final questions as we, as we wrap up our time. And if you have any, any final thoughts, I'd love to hear them. If everything you've been through and everything that, you've, that has brought you to where you are, if you could go back in time and change anything, what would you change? Or would you just leave it all the same? It might sound hokey, but honestly, I would leave it the same. I I feel so blessed. I really have had one hell of a life. If it were to end tomorrow, which God willing, it won't for many years, decades to come. Knock on wood. Um, And that's why it's important to to go after your dreams, to live your life with no regrets, because I don't want to look forward and say, oh, I want to, there's always more I want to do on us. Honestly, there's so much life that, and things that I want to do. I feel like I don't have enough life left to, to do it. There's so much, but um go after your dreams. And, and it's been great. So I have, I've, I've had a very rich, um, diverse enjoyment of all many areas of life. So I'm, I'm really very fortunate. I wouldn't change a thing. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and, and hearing your story. I I'd have to agree. I mean, I, I can't think of, again, many people that went after the dreams and lived with no regrets, uh, like someone like you. So Jill, thank you so much for coming on the show. I sure appreciate you. Thank you, Matt. It's really been great. I think you're terrific and I appreciate you having me on. Hey, we're terrific together. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. So thank you guys for listening in. Uh, remember, you can follow Jill. You can go on LinkedIn and Facebook at Jill Raff. Uh, her website is JillRaff.com, J-I-L-L-R-A-F-F. And her book is Transforming Transactions into Interactions, available now on Amazon. We'll, of course, have all that in the show notes. If you want to follow her on social, check out her website, uh, look at hiring her as a consultant, or at least, of course, starting by, I would pick up the book. It's a great place to start. And you can read her insights uh, into relational customer service and how that can really transform your organization. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great week. Hope you continue to have a great week. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, WCKG 102.3 and 1530 uh, FM and AM in Chicago. Wherever you're listening to this, I sure appreciate you. You know I do. And I will see you very soon as usual. Get out there this weekend and crush it. 